This episode of New Politics was released on the 26th of February, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, are we looking at yet another election campaign based on national security? A union-busting act has blown up in the face of the New South Wales government. And there are a new entrant in the field of politics, but we find out what the new Liberals are all about. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Broadway superstar. We were surprised to hear that there's quite a few people who listen to podcasts through YouTube. We actually took down our YouTube channel last year because we thought that no one was using it, but it's back up there. You can listen to our podcast and we'll also put up a few short videos up there occasionally. And you can do a search for that through YouTube or click on the link at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. We also do have a new t-shirt design available. It's the It's Time for Change t-shirt. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The government has decided that the upcoming election campaign might best be won through the fog of war and it's ramping up all the rhetoric on China and they're trying to magnify the conflict between Russia and Ukraine as something that is relevant to Australia's national interests. Every key point of difference between Australia and China will also be magnified over the next couple of months as the Prime Minister tries to focus on national security issues and paint Anthony Albanese as weak on border protection and not being able to guard the national interest. There was an incident during the week when a Chinese military vessel shone a laser at an Australian Defence Force aircraft, but we don't know the full details and the media was quick to paint this as a major incident, even though they didn't have all the facts at hand. Scott Morrison was also quick to claim that this was a major incident with China and why only someone like him could protect Australia from the Communist Party of China, even though he almost burned his eyes out using an arc welder in yet another publicity stunt. The election campaign hasn't even started yet, but it's just going to be a very long and tiresome process over the next few months if we're going to get more of this every single day of the week. So much to unpack here, the fear of foreign aggression, the fear of China, I've noted that people of Asian extraction in Australia are starting to get very worried that we're heading back to the bad old days. It's really upsetting. I don't want to see people, whether visitors, whether permanent residents, whether Australian citizens of more recently or whether naturalised Australian citizens or whether Australian citizens because they were born here. And there's no legal difference, no moral difference and no ethical difference between any of them. I don't want to see anyone stigmatised and called out for being different. And it's a really insane line to take, this fear of China, clearly to win an election. Now, can the Chinese government be criticised? Of course it can. 
probably we could criticise it more strongly if we didn't have many of the same issues in terms of human rights abuses, possible corruption in the federal government, unclear policy decisions. But the Chinese government is not someone of Chinese extraction in Australia. But the Liberal Party doesn't seem to care about that. They're painting all Asian people or people of Asian extraction, whether they're from China or not, with this untrustworthy suggesting the white Australia policy, if not be returned, then be applied. And also trying to act like big military men to appease some part of the voter. Again, the Defence Force is run by the Minister for Defence, who did about as well in that as he has in every other ministry he's ever done, voted the worst health minister of all time by the AMA, for example, and not because he forced the AMA to accept some home truths, because he was just terrible at the job. It's not going to end well. Hopefully, for all our sakes, hopefully the ending badly will be for them only as they get hammered at an election. There's a possibility that it could end up with much reduced trade from our number one trading partner, uh, Australia being an international pariah in trade. There's things that could go horribly wrong for Australia that could take decades to repair. Well, that relationship between China and Australia has been taking a battering over the past 18 months or so, and it's almost like a relationship that the federal government has been wanting to damage for political gain. And the other factor is that there doesn't seem to have been enough traction within the electorate. So the government just keeps trying to ramp it up a notch. In that recent incident where the Chinese military vessel shone a laser at the ADF aircraft, the Department of Defence, and that's the responsibility of Peter Dutton, as you mentioned before, they issued a statement outlining the incident, but that was about it. We didn't find out what the ADF aircraft was doing in that region. We were told that it was in Australia's exclusive economic zone, but we weren't told that it was actually in international waters, and it was actually much closer to Papua New Guinea than it was to Australia. Now, I'm not condoning the actions of the Chinese vessel, but it's almost like we don't have enough information to condone or not condone the actions. But in the absence of full details, the mainstream media ran with the story pretty much unchecked from one side only. Morrison and Dutton ramped up the attacks on the Chinese government, which of course segued into attacks on Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. And I'm not doubting that some kind of incident occurred, but anyone who has been raising questions about the incident which is what journalists should be doing, is just being labelled as a Chinese government apologist, a conspiracy theorist, or just a nutcase. And I've been accused of all of those things during the week. But we just don't know what actually occurred. Some people have been saying, well, the Department of Defence wouldn't lie about this. They're meant to be apolitical. And to that I say, well, we just have to point out the children overboard incident of 2001 when the Minister of Defence at the time, Peter Reith, he claimed that asylum seekers had deliberately thrown children into the sea when they hadn't. It was a complete lie. We also have to remember the lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, looking internationally and looking a little bit back in history. We can also look at the manipulations of the British government in the lead up to the Falklands War in 1982, when the Thatcher government was behind in the polls, gave the secret diplomatic go-ahead for Argentina to reclaim the Malvinas, which is what they did. Margaret Thatcher claimed that it was an invasion, went to war against Argentina and ended up winning an election just a few months later. So, Governments do lie, departments of defence do lie as well, and guess what? Scott Morrison is a known liar as well, and he's been trying to manipulate this incident with the Chinese vessel as much as possible. I note that a lot of the reporting has come through the Minister of Defence, 
which is usually appropriate. Also in a week in which the um, government was basically shown to be trying to politicise ASIO. Now, there are some departments which you just shouldn't politicise. Foreign affairs, defence, in fact, probably all departments, you shouldn't politicise, you should just run them. But when you politicise these ones, you run into a whole range of issues. All departments should serve the government of the day with free, fearless and frank advice. The Defence Force tends to know what it's doing when it comes to matter of defence. There are times where there's nobody else but defence who can give the correct advice. They shouldn't be worried about pleasing or displeasing the minister. And in fact, defence is probably an extreme case of this in that many careers have ended as defence minister because defence do like to run a tight ship, as it were. It's an odd thing. I would like to, as you would, I'd like to see more detail as to what, when, why. These types of things can happen accidentally, and certainly something happened, probably, whether it was an accident, whether the plane was just on a standard reconnaissance trip, as Air Force planes do, whether they were out trying to provoke trouble, unlikely, but it has happened before, whether it was a deliberately pointed laser or if it was just some kind of accident they pick up what something else and it turns out to be a laser whether we can't know because as you rightly said there's just not enough information made to commit acts too unspeakable to be cited here by an enemy who had captured his mind and his soul. He freed himself at last, and in the end, heroically and unhesitatingly gave his life to save his country. And there's many issues that the Australian community is being told about for the first time or being reintroduced to. Labor MPs have been accused of being Manchurian candidates, and that's a reference from a movie of the same name starring Frank Sinatra in 1962. That's the original version. I think it's much better than the Denzel Washington remake in 2004. We're also hearing the words socialism and communism for the first time in a long, long time. And Anthony Albanese's name is being associated with these ideologies. I'm not too sure if this has actually got much resonance within the voting public, though. Half of the electorate wasn't even born when the Cold War ended in 1989 and the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. We were just young folk at that time, David. But My grandparents told me about it. <laughs> and for sure, one-fifth of the world lives under communism. That's just in the one country, China. But using these labels doesn't seem to have the same potency as they might have had 30, 40, 50 years ago. So we've got Morrison trying to use communism and the left to wage a culture war. And the person most likely to succeed Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, he's claiming that his political and economic views are highly influenced by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And it's almost like these guys are waging their ideological wars from 40, 50 years ago, and they're sending out very confusing messages on national security. They're sending out these very confused messages on China, and it seems that the public either isn't listening anymore or they just don't care. Except that we have a media run by people who are stuck in that mindset. The terms left and right have changed their definition so much as to be meaningless. You can be on the left 
want a free market, social justice. We live in a society in which merchant banker, multi-millionaire Malcolm Turnbull can be called a socialist because he thought that maybe people who don't earn as much money as he does could pay a bit less tax, possibly. We're moving back to the rhetoric of the communists, bad, everyone on the right, good. And it's a dangerous rhetoric because only 10 years before the Second Cold War starts, we had the Second World War. The Cold War really starts in 46, 47, so it's only two years before. Uh, The first Cold War was between the 20s and the 30s and was a lot more domestic in scope, but far more bitter. The 1917 revolution frightened the establishment in countries like Australia and Britain and the UK. There was nearly a uh, military coup in the United States led by the grandfather of George Herbert Walker Bush, for example. In Australia, we had secret armies being set up ready to um, put down any communist uprising that they expected was imminent. This is in 31-32. The 1950s were a little bit less fraught, shall we say. But the point is, is that we're in 2022. There are communist parties in Australia, but if you read their journals, which Anthony Albanese did in 1992, and I have too, so I must be a very bad communist, all the articles are written by one or two people, which doesn't show a large movement. Morrison described Albanese as the most left-wing leader since Gough Whitlam, which is probably true. Kevin Rudd was probably the most left-wing leader since Whitlam, and he wasn't that far to the left, and Albanese is a little bit further to the left. And it's all based upon the fear that they're going to take your guns away from you, because again, it's an American discourse coming straight out of American billionaires who are worried that they're going to have to pay more tax. Picked up holus bolus here and then promoted here by people who really have no business calling themselves Australian as they have no concept of Australian culture. Well, politics is always based on double standards and quite a few different anomalies that happen within the public sphere. But One issue that I've noted is that the Winter Olympics have just concluded in Beijing, and by all accounts, it was a very, very successful event. But if China is so big, bad and dangerous, and this is what the federal government wants us to believe, what are Australian athletes doing over there competing in the Winter Olympics? And if China is so big, bad and dangerous, why is China Australia's largest trading partner at $100 billion of two-way trade each year? Why doesn't Morrison call for a trade embargo on China and encourage other countries to do the same? And I think we know the reasons why he wouldn't do that. But We do have to be wary of China and its global ambitions, but we have to be wary of them, but not frightened or try and pick fights with them. And that's the difference. Good diplomacy means that you can constructively engage with the countries that you have differences with. And and sure, there are going to be people in the electorate that are swayed by the anti-China racism promoted by Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. But most people in Australia seem to accept that the relationship with China is just far more complicated than two blokes screaming from the sidelines with their megaphones, trying to score political points and trying to get votes to try and win the next election. We have two, at least two major ports owned or part owned by China, famously the port of Darwin which I'd have thought would have been a fairly strategic spot to not sell to a foreign power who might be more likely to be an aggressive foreign power than others, and the port of Newcastle in New South Wales, which is only two hours from Sydney. 
40% owned by a Chinese firm. They've both tried to keep quiet and also tried to claim that they're going to buy back somehow. And despite Scott Morrison's anti-constitutional claims that he could do nothing about it as it was the Northern Territory government who sold it off, showing a, a misunderstanding of the difference between a state and a territory and who has responsibility. It was, in fact, the Liberal Party under the ministership of Andrew Robb, who then gets an $800,000 a year job doing not very much for the Chinese after then. It goes beyond the usual double standards of a government. And David, if China doesn't work out, there's always Russia. The Russia-Ukraine conflict, again, it's complex and involves a great deal of history. It's a leftover of politics from the old Soviet Union. It's that age-old issue of different groups of people living in the borders of the country that they don't necessarily want to be a part of. It's a question of nationalism. It's a question of resources and economics. The conflicts between Russia and Ukraine, they essentially commenced as soon as the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, and that became a hot war in 2014. And And we've also seen some of the worst atrocities in Europe that we haven't seen since the war in Bosnia in the 1990s. But the upshot is that not many people in Australia know what it's about, and probably not many people outside of Ukraine and Russia know what it's about. But most people in Australia probably don't know where Ukraine is on a map. And that's what Scott Morrison is hoping for, that Morrison can make people in Australia believe that it's in Australia's field of interest, even though it's not. The issues that resulted from 9-11, they assisted John Howard in the 2001 election because it was like a major atrocity that happened in New York. America is a close ally and it happened to people like us, culturally and linguistically similar. Most people in Australia would be thinking, well, what's Ukraine got to do with us? And As someone who wants to see less war in the world, not more, and of course we should take an interest and be concerned about what's happening in Ukraine, but it's not in Australia's field of interest. And I wouldn't be surprised if Australian troops are deployed to Ukraine over the next month or two, but if Morrison thinks that he might get an electoral boost out of this, I think he's in for a surprise as well. Australia has typically fallen in line since the 1860s We go to Sudan, a contingent from New South Wales and Victoria. Then another contingent from the states go to the Boer War in the 1890s. World War I, which includes the disaster of Gallipoli, which is promoted somewhat as a somewhat victory for Australia because we were able to run away successfully. And the horrors of the French front at Via's Bretonneur and the Somme and, and other through to World War II, which we don't really have much need in the European front, but certainly will be fair, the Japanese in Papua New Guinea and Singapore focus the mind a lot. Korea, maybe, maybe not. Vietnam, definitely not. Iraq, one, and Iraq, two, definitely not. We didn't need to be there is what I'm saying. Uh, This is not to disparage the bravery of individual troops or the the professionalism of the job that Australians did, but it is to question whether we should have wasted time and resources. And again, if we go to the Ukraine, just going back to the Crimea, back to 1850, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. And there's a Ukrainian population in Australia, of course. There's also a Russian population in Australia. We need to support those people and make sure that they're not marginalised or stigmatised. But I'm not sure that we need to send troops to a war a quarter of the, or halfway around the world that will give us very little material benefit in either the short, medium or long terms. 
You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, an age-old union-busting tactic blows up in the face of the New South Wales government. It started out when I was cleaning dishes And the phone rang in the hall I was drawn to it against my wishes Ugly memories of the wall I didn't count on mass destruction When I saw you It was the way I made you seen such mass destruction till I saw you it was the way I made you feel so we've just been talking about how a government likes to use the issues of China and Russia and other international issues to create a favor for itself but if a conservative government cannot find any traction with an international conflict or some race baiting with the Chinese government, what better way to cause division than pick a fight with an old enemy, the unions? Both the New South Wales and federal governments are in a great deal of political trouble at the moment and it seems that they've worked out a joint plan to start attacking unions. During the week, the New South Wales government orchestrated a shutdown of the Sydney train system. The Rail Workers Union and the state government have been in a protracted dispute over safety provisions, working conditions and privatisation concerns. And there has been rolling industrial action for several years, but this is the first time that the network has been shut down. And it was shut down by the New South Wales government and not by the unions. And this led to Scott Morrison attacking the unions. Honestly, the, the disrespect being shown to their, their fellow Sydney siders who are going about their day, you know, kids trying to get to school, parents trying to, you know, get, get their week underway, aged care workers, nurses, police officers, fireys, ambulance officers, uh, all having to deal with the unions uh, carrying on like this in the middle of the night to cause such terrible disruption. And claiming that this is what life would be like under a Labor government. Not much is going right for the Morrison government at the moment, but it seems like the Prime Minister is doing a bit of road testing with different lines of attacks against the Labor Party and Anthony Albanese, China, socialism, communism, national security, and now the unions. And you'd think, well, after this, there's not much more that he can attack. Well, there's always the gays and the mentally ill. Oh, doll bludgers, too. Uh, although I think they're getting wary that certain claiming behaviour of some of their ministers at least might fall under the same spotlight. And of course, I don't want to see any of those people attacked. But you're right, that's how desperate they're going. It again seems like a Sydney-centric issue, but it has Scott Morrison's fingerprints all over it. He was very quick to link it to Anthony Albanese. And there was a very funny meme around with Daniel Andrews holding a phone and saying, stop the New South Wales trains now. There's only so much you can blame the man for. It was a cheap, shoddy, blatant attempt. The Sydney Morning Herald didn't acquit itself very well by basically hiding the fact it was a government lockout, not a strike. They still are capable of doing excellent work from time to time. But for them to say it was a union strike that caused it when that was clearly not the case, 
had they called it a government lockdown and then presented arguments as to why it had to be done, we'd have still whinged and complained, of course, but at least we could have acknowledged that we were talking on fact. And that's fine. We're allowed to disagree and we're allowed to analyze facts. But to start from an untruth was something that I thought the Herald would never really do. Well, I guess it gets back to the behaviour of both the New South Wales government and the federal government. But we've mentioned this many times in previous episodes that these are governments that thrive on division. And it's a specific kind of conservative government that picks up all of the cliches of attacking points, national security, outsiders, people that don't belong, people on welfare, pensioners, unions. And it's been pretty much like this since 2013. And even when someone like Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister between 2015 and 2018, there was still that attempt of seeking division within the community. And then when they run out of things to attack, they start the cycle again. And this time it's the turn of the unions. And irrespective of the union, conservative governments will attack them. There's nurses, teachers, train drivers, even the Pharmacy Guild and the Australian Medical Association, even though these are unions that are more to their liking. And I'm pretty sure that if they didn't realise rugby union was a sport, they'd probably start attacking that as well. But In this latest episode with the Sydney trains, it was the New South Wales government which locked down the system and then tried to blame it on the unions. And this is not a new tactic. It's been used all over the world by conservative governments, sometimes even Labor governments try this trick against unions. But it was fine-tuned by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, and she's been getting quite a bit of a workout in this episode. And that was during the miners' strike in 1984-85 and during the printers' strike in 1986. It was orchestrated with the help of Rupert Murdoch, caused chaos and then blamed the unions for it. The Griner government also used this tactic in New South Wales against the Teachers' Federation in the early 1990s. The Richard Court government in the 1990s as well in Western Australia, they spent most of their time attacking teachers and the nurses' union. There was also the Patrick dispute on the waterfront in 1998, a manufactured crisis and then blaming the unions. But it seems that this time around, the public just isn't buying it. They're blaming the New South Wales government for causing this and not the unions. The other issue was that the New South Wales Transport Minister, David Elliott, he said that unions were engaged in terrorist-like activity. And personally, I've always found that accusing someone that you're trying to negotiate with of being a terrorist is probably not going to result in a very positive outcome. And he seemed to be wanting to spoil for a fight rather than seeking a resolution. So... All of this to me just seemed to be a little bit of a test run, a a day where all of Sydney was inconvenienced by the lockdown of the train system, just so that the Prime Minister could see what the response would be to a few anti-Labour and anti-Albanese sentiments. And, And also this seems to be all about Scott Morrison trying to paint the picture for those 25% of people in opinion polls who say that they are still undecided about Anthony Albanese. He's happy to tell them that Albanese is a communist, a Chinese sympathiser, a socialist. He's part of the Labor-Greens alliance. He's a mad unionist that will allow train strikes every single day of the week in Sydney. doesn't matter if all of this is true or not. It's just a question of whether people will believe it or not or whether enough people will believe it or not. And I'm not sure if they will. I suspect his credibility is shot. And if it's not, it should be. John Howard rarely lied He obfuscated, he was deceptive, he omitted things. 
he suggested things in a way that maybe meant something else to what he said, but there aren't that many occurrences of a straight, absolute, provable lie. And I can say that for all prime ministers, to a greater or lesser extent. I don't think anyone has ever told 100% of the truth 100% of the time. And how are you feeling today, prime minister? You've got low opinion polls You've got ministers working against you. You've lost the support of the membership. But how are you feeling? I feel fantastic and great, and today's a great day. That's just as much of a lie as we're not going to cut jobs in the public service, and then the next day they cut jobs. Scott Morrison seems to be the only one who lies when he doesn't have to. I think there was Bernard Keane from Crikey who pointed that out. Politicians lie for advantage. Scott Morrison just lies. And I think the public are starting to see that. Everything he's done in the last three weeks has backfired. Washing hair in a salon came across as creepy and weird. Spot welding. And it was such an obvious joke. I didn't identify myself as a welder today because even I have limits as to the obviousness of the joke. (laughs) Trying to claim Anthony Albanese is a dangerous communist because he read the Communist Weekly or Socialist Youth Weekly back in 1992. Can I tell you, Scott, we all did. But we also, or at least me, also read Quadrant and The Spectator, Eureka Street, and a whole range of political ideas because we wanted to learn. It's so weird that he could get so far on deception. Well, there's also the perception that Scott Morrison has got a final trick up his sleeve and then everything should be okay. He's still going to win the election and that this may end up turning out to be the case, that he's got one more trick that we don't know about and he may still win the election without pulling out a final trick. But this is what generally happens when there's a surprise election victory. There's a perception that he won against the odds in 2019 and that's actually the case. He did win against the odds in 2019 And because of that, he'll do it again in 2022. This is what was expected of Paul Keating and Labor in 1996. They had a surprise victory in 1993. They were a long-term government. They'd been in for 13 years. And they were expected, well, especially Paul Keating, was expected to work some kind of magic to win again in 1996. But that just never happened for Paul Keating, irrespective of the skill of the politician, there's always the perception that a surprise election victory for an incumbent government against the odds is just eking out that one final victory that they didn't actually deserve. And it shows up usually in their performance during that final term. The final Keating government between 1993 and 1996, it was a relatively poor government, didn't perform very well. And there was an expectation within the Labor movement that Labor and Paul Keating were expected to win that 1996 election. There are similar features here with the Morrison government, a tired long-term government that didn't expect to win in 2019. They eked out that extra term that it didn't really deserve, and its performance has been abysmal during this parliamentary term. And that's not to say that he can't win or won't win the next election, but history does have a habit of repeating itself. There's kind of a pattern in Australia. We, we don't like to change that often, but we kind of have the pattern of three terms. And you can see this in state governments more readily than federal government. The federal government has been a bit crazy since 2007, really. And you could probably go back before, but generally you win big in your first term, you lose quite a lot, but hold on in your second, you get your third, 
and then the government changes. I really see this government as a continuation of the Abbott government. So we're into the fourth term, really. So they got their extra one term, which they've squandered. They've done nothing with. The two things that they were clear on their agenda, a federal ICAC, which nobody ever really believed they were serious of, and the religious discrimination bill, both crashed out the federal ICAC because they never really got around to it. And the religious discrimination bill was because when push came to shove, they knew that it wouldn't get through the Senate. So they withdrew it. And it hurt a lot of people. It really did. And we've got to acknowledge that, that what is theoretical politics for some is diehard, on the ground, awful figurative beatings for others. They don't deserve to win the next election. They didn't deserve to win the last one. So yeah, they still could win. The percentages involved rely on a few hundred people changing their mind in a few key seats. And if there's 25% of people who are undecided, which I do find a bit hard to believe, but again, I, I don't doubt the relative honesty of the polls. They haven't lost yet. And Labor's big danger is slipping into complacency. They've got a more popular candidate in Anthony Albanese than they did in Bill Shorten. For all of Bill Shorten's strengths, he never really captured the imagination of the people. Yeah, they don't deserve to win the next election, but deserving, as those of us who've lived a bit of life know, deserving isn't usually a major part of what happens. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, we speak to Ryan Bruce, the candidate for the New Liberals, and find out what the new political party is all about. player on the block in politics and it's the new liberals and they'll be running candidates to the next election they've got an ambitious platform and they've got ambitious plans for the future some of their party have aimed to win 60 seats in parliament in the immediate future but politics is a slow hard slog and it's difficult to win just the one seat let alone 60. there have been some questions about these ambitions there were also some questions about their name the new liberals being too closely associated with the liberal party of australia but Political parties need to start somewhere. Could this be the start of something big for the new Liberals? Minor parties, and at the moment they're a minor party, 
have an interesting history in Australia. The new Liberals see in the short term, at least, over the next couple of election cycles, holding the balance of power in either the House of Representatives or the Senate. And in a sense, that's a very realistic strategy. If you've got the membership, if you've got the passion, if you've got the policies, and if you've got the, uh, we'll call it the cut-through to get people to vote for you, I think the new Liberals probably have that passion. There's been a few missteps along the way, but they're organised and they're committed. And it seems, as you'll hear, that, that they have their eye on the long game, not the short game. And it taps into this whole independent with a T movement that has seen us interview so many other very interesting candidates across the way. Usually these things are a problem for Labor. I think it's fair to say that the Democrats probably took a few more votes off Labor than they did off the Liberal Party, though they did take votes off the Liberal Party. The Greens are at least perceived to be a threat to Labor. There's always a call for Labor and the Greens to unite or coalesce. Neither side seems terribly interested in doing that. And so when a minor party comes up, particularly a progressive one, because we have quite a few, we'll call them conservative ones, like One Nation, United Australia Party and, and the rest of them. When progressive parties and centrist independents and I would put them under the broader umbrella of progressive. And again, the history of progressivism in Australia is different to the rest of the world in the same way the history of liberal is different in Australia to the rest of the world. I think there's a grassroots movement for a change. How much change will be affected by the new liberals remains to be seen. That's not criticising them. I just don't have a crystal ball that goes that far in the future, and I want to make it perfectly clear to any new Liberals members listening, I'm not here to drag you down or really to build you up. We're just here to give the message. And I interviewed Ryan Bruce, and he gave us a pretty decent rundown of the party and what it stands for. I'm joined today with Ryan Bruce, the new Liberals candidate for the seat of Aston. Welcome, Ryan, to New Politics. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, David. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. So let's get straight into it. What do the new Liberals stand for? So we're underpinned by our Charter of Core Values and our Constitution, which you can find on our, on our website. So you could ask someone else that question, and you'd get some different uh, answers. But what I would say we stand for is integrity. That is integrity in the party and integrity in politics. Uh, we stand for equality of opportunity. That is, no one should have to live on the streets or work themselves to death in order to make ends meet. And lastly, we stand for unity, you know, that is celebrating Australia's unity, you know, while harnessing the power of, it, of its diversity. What are your policies then? So we have over uh, 30 different policy areas that we're looking to reform, but I won't bore you the, the details of uh, all of them. What I would say our key policies are is our, our climate change policy, that is, we're targeting a, a net zero by 2030 carbon emissions, uh, our federal ICAC policy, and our job guarantee program. So I would say that they're the three key policies that we're sort of uh, campaigning hard on this election. And yeah, we're really working hard to uh, bring those to light. So let's just expand on those a little bit. Uh, the first two are probably fairly obvious, but the job guarantee, what, what's that? The jo a job guarantee scheme or a full employment scheme is it, something that we've had before, 
uh, we had it in the post-war era uh, from about 1946 to 1975. And I think it really improved the quality of life for a lot of Australians in that time and saw the wealth of the average Australian increase quite a lot over that time. And obviously economic thinking in that uh, from about 1975 onwards sort of shifted to a more neoliberal approach. So I think what we're trying to do with this is return Australia to a genuine full employment. That is, anybody who wants a job should be able to have a job at a good living wage and not have to work two or three small, like two or three part-time jobs to make a living. So if anybody wants a job, they should be able to get one. And yeah, uh, we, we can we can achieve full, full employment in this country, but it just requires the right policy settings to do so. So what do you think your typical electorate might look like? As in the ones that we're targeting? Yes. So generally they, they tend to be towards the more like the inner city type things that a lot of the independents are targeting as well. So there is some a bit of a, I would say, some overlap in the areas we're targeting. They tend to be easier to cover as they're smaller and it's easier to meet up and um, hold events and that sort of thing. But we have a few more sort of in the outer metropolitan areas like my own. So mine, Aston's not really in a city. It's more, you know, outer metropolitan suburban areas. We're also running a candidate in Hawke as well, which is, again, more more outer metropolitan. So they tend to be the inner city, but we have a couple of the outer metropolitan seats as well, like my own. Okay, so why form a party or why join a party? Why not run as an independent? So I, th- I think the key thing there is the support network. So if I was going to run as an independent, I don't think I would have the network of people around me to, to sort of get it up and running. So when you join a party of any size, really, like minor or uh, major party, you you have a, a, a sort of automatically a network of people around you you can bounce ideas off and share ideas with and, you know, get advice from. So I think that's one of the things for me, as in I don't, I don't have a large network. So if I was um, to run as an independent, I think it would just sort of fall flat. So I think that for me personally, that's why I joined the New Liberals, to have that network around me and, you know, share ideas with people. And it's been great to bounce ideas off people and have support of the party members as well. How do you respond to claims that it's really just a vanity project for Victor Klein? Well, he's obviously the party leader and part of his role is to drum up excitement and support for the party. Uh, He's put more blood, sweat and tears than anybody into the party. So if he says something on Twitter or something that, you know, might seem vain, what I would say is that it's an attempt to build up interest and excitement in the party. So it's not a statement I would necessarily agree with, that it's just a vanity project. But part of his role is building up that excitement and interest in the party. And I wouldn't think that you could say the same thing about other party leaders. Oh, you know, the Greens isn't just a vanity project for Adam Band or Bob Brown or something like that, for instance. What's he like to work with? I found him to be uh, great to work with, and he's really he's really helped me grow as a candidate. He's helped me improve, you know, just like even small things, like just the way to you know answer a question or something like that. Yeah, I, I found him to be a, a great support to me personally. I, I haven't got any complaints to uh, to say. Are there seats that you're more confident of winning than others? So I think uh, North Sydney, of course, has a great shot. That's obviously Victor's seat, and he's got a great team around him great campaign manager and you know he's really putting in the work on the ground so I think he's got a, uh, a shot in North Sydney. Also I think uh, two Queensland seats we've got Kim Pryor running in Bonner she's got a, a lot of great people around her and she's working really hard on the ground down, uh, in Bonner so I think she's got a shot as well and also Samuel Holland in uh, up in Ford 
I think he's making a few waves up in Queensland. He's also appeared on, on another podcast, Irrational Fear, as well. So I think he's uh, making some good inroads in Ford as well. I'd say those are the three seats that we've got a good shot in. And I presume Aston as well. <laughs> yes. Well, you've got me running in Aston. Well, I'm a bit more of a realist and I understand it's, it's a quite a safe liberal seat. So it's certainly a challenge, but I'm here uh, giving it my best. And that's all we can ask of any uh, representative. Yeah, of course. Everyone's doing the same, regardless of uh, political persuasion. They're just putting in putting their best foot forward. Now, have you worked, and I mean the, the new liberals, have you worked with other parties or independent movements in any kind of way? I personally haven't had any involvement with any other parties. Obviously, there would be others who might say who might speak differently, but my understanding is that the new liberals have only been working amongst themselves. No other parties, to my knowledge. So you're not part of the Voices of movement or the, the those types of movements that are supporting lots of non-major party candidates? No, no, no. Different and separate groups. Because each, each of those independents is running their own sort of, they have their own values and viewpoints and that sort of thing. We have the sort of, you know, central sort of party policies that we're running on. So tell us about yourself. Uh, why did you decide to run for the New Liberals? So I'm just a teacher with a passion for politics. I don't want to sound too cliche, but, you know, I'd never thought about uh, entering politics. But, you know, I just can't sort of sit by and wait for someone else to do something. So I found out about the party after the Eden Monero by-election in 2020. And I thought, you know, why not give it a shot? I'll become a member. And then I just got to chatting with Victor and the party and eventually convinced me to run as a candidate. So I just put my hand up and I've been putting my foot, best foot forward in um, being a candidate. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, enjoying the ride so far. You, I take it you're an Aston local, like you live in the area, you've been in the area a while. It's a part of you, as, as it were? Yeah, absolutely. I've lived in the electorate for most of my life. Uh, I went to primary school and high school in Aston and I've worked in the, in the electorate for over 10 years. So I, I do consider myself, you know, a genuine local. I care about the electorate, you know, and I just want the best representation possible for it. What future do you see for the New Liberals? So I think the New Liberals can have a presence in um, both houses at a, at a federal level to, to some degree. It may not be this election cycle because obviously we've popped up relatively quickly and it's very hard to win one seat, let alone a few. So I think in a couple of election cycles, we could have several members across both houses of parliament on the crossbench, contributing to legislation, making amendments and that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, there is a genuine hope that we can have a presence in politics for years to come. Sort of filling the position that the Australian Democrats or the um, Greens had, is that fair to say? Sure. It's, uh, yeah, it's not dissimilar. We're obviously not, we have a different view on on certain things, I'd say, but yeah, it's not dissimilar to, you know, as you said, the Democrats or the Australian Greens. Keeping them honest and hoping for a balance of power. Yeah, that's right. At least in the short term. And then I assume hopefully moving to a more of a majority or minority party. Yeah, of course. So we'll, ha- we'll obviously assess the results after after the election and then, you know, make a game plan moving forward. But holding that balance of power, I think, would be um, a very, very good result uh, coming out of the upcoming election. I'm not going to hold you to anything, by the way. We're just theorising as to potential futures rather than this is the Ryan Bruce vision for the party. (laughs) What about yourself? What future do you see for yourself in the new Liberals? My role is obviously as a candidate right now, and I think that's something that I can continue to see myself as being in the future. If I'm not lucky enough to win the seat this time around, I'll certainly uh, consider putting my hand up again in in three years' time, you know. 
and that's that's a role that I'm really enjoying. We obviously meet regularly, have discussions and that sort of thing and bounce ideas off each other. And that's what I think I'm really enjoying at the minute. Just, you know, just being a candidate and uh, yeah. So what I would add is that, you know, you can find us all on social media. You can find our main website at thenewliberals.net.au. You can find myself on Twitter at Ryan underscore TNL. I'm very happy for you to give me a follow if you'd like. Uh, you can send me any questions on Twitter or uh, email if you like. Yeah, I'm happy to answer anything that uh, your listeners might have to ask. Thank you very much. This interview has been part of our series and talking to the minor parties and independents. I thank you very much for joining us. Good luck and hope things go well for you. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.